From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next. Today, the final installment of Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and restoration. A series of shows built by the WBFO team that conducted extensive reporting during a recent visit to Charleston. Just ahead, a conversation with associate producer Charles Gilbert, who shares his insights and feelings about Charleston and its connection to the earliest days of slavery in the United States. And Thomas O'Neill White sits down with Chris Singleton, the former baseball player and inspirational speaker. Chris Singleton lost his mother when she was murdered along with eight others during the 2015 racist attack on the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Ahead, the final installment of Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and restoration. This is Buffalo What's Next. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. WBFO is presenting Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and reconciliation. Recently, WBFO sent uh, four staff members to Charleston to do extensive reporting on Charleston in the years since the Mother Emanuel shooting that claimed nine black people inside that legendary church in Charleston. Trying to compare what it's been like for Charleston since that time and what Buffalo could learn in its time after the May 14th shootings of 2022. With us, the associate producer for the Buffalo What's Next and one of those members of WBFO who traveled to Charleston, Charles Gilbert. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, sir, to have you around in our conversations. Uh, our conversations, though, will be a little heavier, perhaps, maybe than the ones we normally have around the newsroom here. And that's because, uh, as part of the uh, group, you're one of uh, two black Buffalonians who went from our WBFO staff down to Charleston, so you, you have a little different perspective on things. And it is interesting to find out, and I don't, I'd been to Charleston in like 2003, and I didn't realize some of the connections of Charleston to the history of slavery in the United States. But just to touch on those, for those not necessarily familiar, between the years 1804 and 1807, just a three-year period, 70,000 Africans were enslaved and brought through the port of Charleston. Over 40% of enslaved Africans in North America came through the port of Charleston, and that research can go deeper and deeper and into even more troubling numbers if we let them, but we're going to move on from that. What we want to move on to, though, is some of the places that you visited while you were in Charleston. One place, Sullivan Island. Tell us the significance of Sullivan Island. Sullivan Island, that is the landing spot for Africans from the slave ships. That was their last stop before getting quarantined and then sent off to be auctioned off for slavery. So it was very powerful for me. I remember heading there and I was texting uh, Bridget, our managing editor, and I was letting her know because she was supposed to be on the trip obviously and that didn't happen because she ended up being sick. But one of the things that she kind of said is, you know, one day 
on a relaxed day, just, you know, we just go on the beach or something like that. And I was like, you know, everybody was kind of like, okay, I'm not the beach person. Hmm. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I actually believe that some people say that black people, the reason they have that fear of water is because it traits back to mm. slavery. And I feel like I'm one of those people. I've never, I'm not really a swimmer. Don't get involved in that. My daughter is though. But um, I told her like we're going there and I told her the name of the beach. I said, yeah, we're going to some beach, Sullivan Island. And that's when she texted me the significance of it. So as we are slowly approaching, my mood kind of switched. I felt my energy just change. And then as we are walking up there, the area is very swamp-like. You know, I said this in our roundtable conversation. But as I'm walking there, visually, everything went in a cinematic black and white and I just when the minute I seen the beach I didn't see I didn't see the you didn't see a tourist spot no I I seen where my ancestors were you know and I was so like emotional but I didn't cry you know, but I was just sitting there just wrapped up in the emotion. Like I felt it in my, the pit of my stomach and I called my mom, I FaceTimed her and I'm like, you know, she's like, you're, you're at the beach. And I said, yeah. And she's like, she knows I'm, you know, so she's like, oh, well she knows I will go to one, but I'm not going to, you know, really interact. And I'm explaining to her like, this is weird. This is a weird feeling. Like I've never felt like this. Never. And I happen to look up and I'm like, oh, wow, there's a cruise ship. My mother loves cruises. If she can go on a cruise every year, she would. Hmm. She's like, oh, let me see. Let me see. So I turn, I flip my camera so she can see it. And she's just like, wow. Like she's just amazed of it. Cause you can, you can get a good, look at it but I'm not seeing a cruise ship I'm not I'm seeing a slave ship that's Mm -hmm. what I'm seeing and I just kept walking around in circles walking back and forth just telling myself like this is this is where it started you know and kind of to see where African-Americans, Africans have how we've, where we've come from, from there to where we are now and the issues that we still deal with. Um, I have roots to the Carolinas. Um, I know Charlotte, North Carolina, really, but I may, I mean, you said it 40%, but I think even in one of the tours, the one tour that we did, they basically had alluded to the fact that majority of African Americans can root their history to Charleston some way or how. Yeah, I think I did see that also, like I was saying, more troubling numbers. I think 80% is an estimate of African Americans who can trace some sort of lineage to the port of Charleston. So you're on Sullivan Island, you're, you're feeling this, you're, and well, we talked about what you, you're kind of seeing, but what, what were you feeling? What, I, I can only imagine, so I'm just going to ask you to try to explain it as best as possible. My gut feeling, like my instinct, because I went there twice. Um, the first one was like I was angry. You know, because I'm thinking of why we are there. 
thinking of the stories that I've been told leading up to being there. I'm thinking of all the stories I've heard growing up and even in college. Because most of the stories I heard in college is not the stories that I heard growing, like, in school. High school, him. Um, because they didn't teach us that stuff. You know, they just glossed over. It was like a little, hey, this is what happened. We knew about slavery, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know. But the roots of, like, the essence of it, I remember, you know, and Emancipation, the Will Smith movie, played in my head a lot while I was there. Hmm. Um, just because that's more the more recent slave movie that's out. But that story played in my head too. You know, it was just raw. It was just like I I was angry because I'm looking around and I'm seeing. Once I kind of got out of that mindset of seeing the past and I'm now seeing the present, I'm seeing the right now and I'm seeing families, kids, dogs running around happy in water, laughing, joking. I'm just like, do you understand like, where you're at right now, the significance of where we are, like where you're standing. And I got, I got upset, you know, I was very upset. And then I remember going back there the next day and having a different perspective of things, you know, speaking to, speaking to um, someone near and dear to my heart, she alluded and gave me, a better perspective of why you shouldn't really be angry. You know, you can, that yeah, we can be upset, but look like we're able to be here freely. She says some other stuff too, that I can't say, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, she, she just made it, she brought it to a better understanding for me to where it's like, okay, I can see, you know. I want to move on to a couple of other portions of the trip, but before I do, and this is something I don't know about you, was this really the first time that you had visited a spot that had such a deep connection to slavery? Yes. Another thing that I recall from my trip to Charleston are some of the amazing homes that you see around Charleston. The architecture is quite striking. Quite lovely for sure. But for you, you had a different perspective on some of those places. What was it? They were plantation homes. They were, they're still set up as they were back in slavery times. And to know that one of the main attractions to South Carolina and to Charleston was and it still is but they kind of they're not putting it out there as much anymore obviously is they have plantation weddings I'm looking around looking at these houses and I'm just looking at them like this is like once again maybe it's because I'm I'm a creator at at heart but I see Slave master, family sitting on the porch with some uh, a slave coming out, you know, doing their whatever they're asking them to do. Like I'm seeing that. You also, um, and you did tell me a little bit about this, but and first time I heard it, um, it uh, it really shook me. Um, you went along with Thomas O'Neill White, who we should also a lot of our listeners do know. Thomas, of course, also. Um, is uh, African-American as well. Both of you went to Sunday services at the Mother Emanuel AME Church, the site of 2015, where nine members of, black members of that congregation were shot and killed by a racist, white racist. Um, and that, of course, was a big p reason why 
WBFO visited Charleston, but you went in there. You were there for services, and you were just talked about your spirit not settling well. How did your spirit settle? Did it settle during Sunday services at Mother Emanuel AME? It didn't. I think that was the worst that my spirit felt. As I said in the round table, it was... I felt death. Being in a place like that, you know, knowing what's happened, when I walked in there, it was just, it was eerie. You know, it was very eerie. The the demograph, which is, I didn't discuss that in the round table, but hmm. the demograph there was, they were older. You know, okay. they were like, I'm, it's like I'm looking at my grandparents, you know. Around my age. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like the one thing Thomas said, and I would agree because I was there. It was like there was a, there was a, there was a pre, there was a lot of white people present there. Made me think like, okay, are they here because of the, the significance of the church, not the fact that it's one of the first, AME churches. But because it was the church that eight years ago had that massacre. But yeah, I was sitting there and I, I couldn't even get into the service. Like I, I really couldn't and You're a regular churchgoer, right? I used to be. Okay. I used to be. And I mean I've been to different churches and this one just it, it didn't I couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into his word I couldn't understand not that I couldn't understand it but it was just my mind and soul was not there because I was just looking and seeing that day play out in my head from him sitting at the him sitting in 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 the bench you know just listening to them to him acting out the events like all that played out in my head as I'm like looking around there and just seeing it all and and it's it's in construction like they're they're doing a lot of reconstruction to to the church so I'm looking at it just thinking like it just happened like even though it was eight years ago because they're rebuilding a lot of this the parts of the church it felt like they were still fixing from eight years ago hmm glad you went to mother manual yes i mean i wouldn't had i would have felt like i was missing something if i didn't go there you know but it kind of, I won't even say it kind of, it lets me know I cannot step foot in the tops. Um, you brought up a point there with the Jefferson Avenue tops um, that we might get into a little bit here, but I want to just jump back to a question I probably should have asked you at the beginning. What were your expectations for going to Charleston? So you knew a, a little bit. You didn't know maybe all of the history, but you most certainly knew both of Mother Emanuel, of course, and the shooting there, but also probably were aware uh, to a certain extent of the connection of Charleston to the enslaved Africans who came to North America. What were your ex- expectations, and maybe were they, did, you, did it live up to your expectations, or... Were there other takeaways from your time there that you'd like to share? I, I really went in there with an open mind. There were points where I was nervous, which is I didn't bring this up at the round table, but I was nervous at points, you know, going down there. I remember watching and seeing, you know, journalists and news reporters be on 
in like movies and shows going to events or going to cover certain things and the backlash especially if you're an outsider coming into a place especially a place that has been hit with tragedy that will be like outsiders coming to buffalo to cover may 14th we would kind of have some type of defense why are you here you know we know the intention is good but it's still that defense because of the damage that that's done to our community you know then it's like reopening wounds that some people don't want to reopen you know like i remember when me and holly sat with um one of the councilmen it's the last interview that we did and he's a member of the church he's a member of mother emmanuel and we asked about it and he had told us like you know he may or may not depending on he's like i sometimes i can't finish my conversation i can't talk about it because it's still it's still fresh in in me and i bared witness to it i bear witness to him sitting there and he couldn't even get the words out when he said our you know he said our pastor is gone and then he was about to say our past my pastor was murdered but he couldn't even finish that right when he was about to say murdered he it's like it's like somebody choked him like grabbed him was like no and you can see it in his face and i'm looking directly at his eyes and you that pain i can understand why anybody if you come in there as an outsider they will kind of hold that resentment so i was nervous about those i was nervous about I tend to sometimes think the worst. <laughs> so I'm thinking I guess that's what you and I have in common. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking to myself, oh, are we are we gonna encounter any white supremacist, any anybody that is of ignorance? Are we gonna encounter it? And if we do, I don't know how I would react, you know. Especially because of the pairing. You know, it was Holly and myself and Thomas and Tom. No problem with Thomas and Tom being together. Me and Holly. Holly's a white woman. And then I'm black. So you're seeing two people and people go off of optics they go off of what they see so even though at points holly has her wbfo you know credentials with her we just look like tourists some people will look at it as that's a couple like there was one time when we were in marion square and this white this interracial couple and i knew they were interracial because they were holding hands but he was nervous and he's a white man he was nervous of holding her hand you can see and we're in marion square which we talked about the significance of marion square and the fact that if you look at it through satellite i wish i had a drone so i can shoot it from the sky but it's designed like the confederate flag so they're walking in this park and i mean it's broad daylight but she but he was just nervous to hold her hand because where they were i'm sitting there thinking about that people have my like my family has my location so i had you know let them know okay i'm going to this park i'll let everybody every day give them a, like update of what's going on and when i told my mom that my mom was like charles please 
be careful. Mm-hmm. I we don't I don't need nothing happening to you. And I get it, it's my mom, completely understand. But there was points where I was just like, Yeah, I'm you know, let me stay alert, you know, with my surroundings and things like that. So going back to your question, the expectation, I just went in there with an open mind, but I was still nervous from time to time. You know, just just based on where I'm at. And just to be clear, there were no issues. No. None whatsoever. I wanted to talk a little bit about, as best you can, on Buffalo What's Next for the last year. We've been hearing a lot about what it's like to be black in Buffalo. A lot of it's not really necessarily new, but I think we've heard about it uh, in a lot of personal uh, fashion throughout this program. What about, you're only there for a few days in Charleston, but was there a a feeling for you in Charleston that was different, similar to Buffalo, to your experience here? Can you compare what it felt like for you? I mean, other than the, the discussion that we just got into right there, which I think was worthwhile, a little bit of intensity, but uh, at the same time, just you know, being in your own skin in Charleston as comparing it to what it's like being in Buffalo. For the most part, it might sound a little crazy, but I think that you feel more of the segregation and the racism here mm. than in the South. I don't know if it's because the South is more, they're more open with it. And because it's so, you know, so open, they're just like, you know, it's kind of like a whatever thing. But here is kind of, it's a wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, like we we don't really know it until you pull back the curtain and and you see it, and then it's with the people that you would least probably expect. Um, most of the white people that I interacted with down there, even though it was a small amount because it was just through passing or walking, they were wholesome. They were polite, and it wasn't that like. I'm fearful, so I have to be polite to you. No, it was like, it was genuine. You know, it was that, as I said in the round table, it was that Southern hospitality. Like, you really got that feeling for them down there. But how about for you as a as an adult black man? And, and I know you're a deep thinker, so I, I know you've thought about this, but you don't have to get into it as much as you do. But how how do you reconcile for yourself the history of uh, the black experience in America. You know, we know where it started. That's, I don't know. Because every time I think that I can have peace with what's happened in the past, something happens again that makes me no longer have that peace. You know, every time I think that, okay, we're not going to, have another mass shooting or racially motivated shooting, something happens. And it just takes me back to being angry, you know, takes me back to how much more can, can we, can we take? Well, thanks for sharing that. And you did mention how you find yourself or you can find yourself or you have found yourself at peace sometimes with, with um, the legacy of enslaved Africans. and uh, But that does bring us to the, something that was very close to you as well, and that is what happened on May 14th at the Tops. You said earlier, you're never going to walk into that store again. And uh, obviously that broke your peace. But here we are a year after. What are your thoughts about it, if you don't mind sharing? We've asked a lot of people about this over the last year, and I have not asked you, and I'm asking you. Just a disclaimer, I may get emotional, so. Sorry, <laughs> that's understandable. Because I haven't never really spoke on it. I mean, I've briefly talked about it on on my own personal podcast, but it wasn't really in-depth. I think back of that day, and the reason I think back to that day for very 
many reasons, but because I was right up the street from it happening where I, you know, do most of my podcast is at the Beverly Gray Center on East Utica. And I remember, you know, it was me, it was, you know, my videographer, it was my best friend and my videographer's daughters and one of my other close friends. And my best friend, I remember, we just got done recording one and we were going to do another one. And he was like, all right, I'm going to go to the store. I said, okay. So he goes to the store. And now everybody's sitting there. And then I happen to go out of the studio to go into, like, the main. Um, at the time, it was just a conference room. So I walked into the conference room. And I can look directly across. And I see fire trucks, ambulance, police cars. And it's, it's a nice spring day. And unfortunately, because of that, you know, area, stuff does happen over there. So I'm like, what happened? My first instinct is just like, it's a nice day and we can't even just enjoy the weather. Like, what just happened? And I call I call him to see where he's at. He doesn't answer the first time. So I'm like, okay. So he calls back and I'm like, you know, good and then I he's like yeah yeah I'm, I'm coming out and I see him walking across the street so I have to open the door to let him in and when he opens the door he's like yo somebody was just shooting at the tops and I'm like what and he's like yeah man it's some dude some white dude all camo he's they got him on the ground like I, I seen him and everything so I'm like wait 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 so my instinct was to grab I got on my phone and our instinct, our first instinct is go right on social media. Somebody's going to say something about it on social media. I went on Facebook, started seeing people saying, check on your people, check on your friends, check on your loved ones. Something happened at Tops on Jefferson. So I called my mom and I'm like, I just want to let you know I'm okay. She's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you didn't hear? She was like, no. I'm like, well, there was a shooting at Tops. Like, some white kid just went in there and did that. So she's like, so now she is checking her phone, is checking TV. It was kind of like I had to try, I had to tell my mind, like, okay, cause let's not think about what's actually going on outside. Let's, let me not try to think about that. Let me stay within here, stay within this circle, within these four walls. But then my mentor who, you know, that's his space, he came by to check to make sure people were good, but he seen my car there. So he's like, you good? And I said, yes, I'm, we're, we're fine. Everybody's fine in here. He said, okay, stay in. Do not go outside. Just stay in here. And then I'm just remember just at one point going to the door and I did step outside hearing screams, cries, feeling that just to Mother Emanuel, feeling death, you know, not knowing why did this happen. I mean, I didn't see it. My friend said he's seen a body on the floor. You know, he'd seen one of the victims and I'm sitting there just it's hitting me like a ton of bricks is hitting me. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, all right, man, let's just keep your composure. Don't break because I grew up over there. My mother and my godmother used to go there faithfully. I could not imagine how any of the victims family friends felt or are feeling knowing that like my grandmother before she passed she lived two blocks away she could have been going in there 
said it's I know a lot of I grew up around that area, so I know a lot of people that still live around that area and friends and loved ones and it's just it has really hit home for me because that's literally my that's where I grew up. Charles Gilbert appreciate you sharing. Thanks for your work. No problem. Charles Gilbert is the associate producer of Buffalo What's Next. He's one of the four WBFO reporters who went to Charleston recently and is helping to produce Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and reconciliation. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. My name is Damon Fordham, and over the last 20 years, I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums, and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, The Lost Stories of Black Charleston. of the tour deals with the Denmark Beasy Slave Rebellion of 1822. Denmark Beasy was born in St. Thomas Virgin Islands around 1767 and he was owned by a Charlestonian named Captain Joseph Beasy. Captain Beasy needed somebody to do the paperwork for the plantation so he taught Denmark how to read and boy did he live to regret that because Denmark read other things. He read Exodus 21:16 which said, he that stealeth a man and selleth him shall be put to death. And Revelation 13.10, that says, he that leadeth into captivity shall be led into captivity. Things you don't usually hear in church. Gee, I wonder why. And he also read about the Haitian Revolution, where the blacks of Haiti, under the leadership of Toussaint Leoverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, overthrew Napoleon to make Haiti the first free black republic in the Western Hemisphere. Things you don't usually hear about in a classroom. Gee, I wonder why. So, you can guess what is on his mind. They came here in 1782, and Captain Vesey would rent Denmark out to do chores for other slave owners. And he would split the commission that he made from that with Denmark. So Denmark was walking down East Bay Street, several blocks from us, on September the 30th, 1799, and he saw a barker with a roulette wheel and a crowd surrounding him. And the barker said, hurry, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up, place bets on the number, step right up. Round and round she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. And Denmark placed a bet on number 1884 and won $1,500. So he went back to Captain Beasy. Oh, uh, let's see, I'm working here in my ledger here, and uh, oh, Denmark, come on in, old boy, what can I do for you? Captain Beasy, I have a question for you. Why, certainly, what is it? Sir, how much are you worth? How about worth? Uh, let's see, I'm worth, let's see, how much are you worth? Uh, let's see, you are worth uh, $600. Uh, why do you ask, Denmark? Denmark reached in his pocket. Flickety, 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 flickety. Okay, I'm worth $600. Here's eight, see ya. Hey, wait a minute, Denmark, have a nice day. So, Captain Beasy, took Denmark to the courthouse, which ruled on December 31st, 1799, that Denmark Beasy was then, thenceforward, and forever free. So he became a lay minister at the Hempstead AME Church on Charleston's east side. And while he was doing that, he was secretly gathering a group of followers to form the Great Slave Rebellion of 1822. The plan was they would break into the city armory, which is now the federal courthouse, late at night, and steal guns. And then they would go throughout Charleston setting fires. And when the slave owners came to put them out, bow, 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 bow. Then they would go throughout Charleston freeing black people. And he would lead them down to Charleston Harbor where they would take the guns and hijack ships and sail to Haiti where they would be free. But May 25th, 1822, one of Denmark's followers, William Paul, went to the corner of Broad and East Bay and he ran into Peter Prelo, who was owned by Captain John Prelo. And he told Peter of the plot. Peter ran back to his owner, Captain John Prelo. Mr. Prelo, 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 Mr. Prelo
goodness, Peter, what do you mean by waking me up at this ungodly hour? Do you realize what time it is? What's the matter with you? You're shaking like a leaf on a tree. Mr. Prelude, guess what Mr. Denmark Vies is going to do? Guess what he's going to do? He is? Oh, my goodness. Heavens to Murgatroyd. This is outrageous, atrocious, and it's pretty bad, too. I must call out the militia expeditiously and right now. So he called out the militia, and Vizi and 34 of his followers were captured on June 16, 1822, and the court of Charleston ruled that on July 2, 1822, they would hang by the neck until dead. Peter was fat and happy. The state of South Carolina freed Peter for his treachery, gave him a financial stipend for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Charleston, there was an educated free black man named Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne, who had a school for free and enslaved children. And because Denmark Vesey used the Bible and history books and the Constitution to encourage revolution, the state of South Carolina made it illegal to teach an African-American to read and write. So they shut down his school. But he then went to Xenia, Ohio, where he started Wilberforce College, the first black college in America that was run by black people. And one of his graduates was Bishop Richard Harvey Kane, who came down here in 1865 and took what was left of the Hampstead AME Church. And he built a new church on 110 Calhoun Street. He named it after the Hebrew word for God is with us and said it would be the mother of the new black churches in Charleston. And that is how Mother Emanuel AME Church came into being. February 22nd, 1898. A black postmaster named Fraser Baker was lynched in Lake City, South Carolina, along with his two-month-old daughter, Julia. The black ministers of Charleston gathered at Mother Emanuel, and they raised money for the Baker family and sent a petition to President William McKinley, demanding that he put a stop to lynching. And that petition was handed to President McKinley by that great black female anti-lynching warrior, Miss Ida B. Wells, and when the great Miss Ida B. Wells went to the White House and met with President McKinley and demanded that he act upon that petition to stop lynching, he ignored it. 124 years later, the great-granddaughters of Miss Ida B. Wells went to the White House and they watched as President Joseph Biden signed into law the Ida B. Wells Anti-Lynching Act of 2022, and that had its origins right at Mother Emanuel. June 17, 2015, the terrorist Dylan Roof entered Mother and Emanuel and assassinated my good friends, the Reverend Clemente Pinckney in the library and Cynthia Hurd and seven other members of the congregation. Dylan Roof was tried at the federal, at the, uh, federal courthouse, the Julius Waitees Waring Judicial Center, appropriately enough. And today, he is at the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, awaiting his execution. So most people know that right after all of this happened, President Obama came down here and he gave the eulogy for Reverend Clemente Pinckney. And in the middle of his eulogy, he made history when in the middle of that, he got up and broke into his version of all know that. But what most people don't know is that two days after the assassinations, 10,000 of us marched on Mother Emanuel to show the world that we were not afraid to go back to the church. And while we were doing that, the Jewish community of Charleston marched in front of the church, formed a circle, and recited the Hebrew prayer of the dead to show solidarity with us. Three years later, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh met the same fate as Mother Emanuel. So that Friday night, a bunch of us went to the synagogue over on Hazel Street for Friday night Shabbat services to fellowship in Shabbat with them, but also to return that favor of solidarity. 
And with that said, my name is Damon Fordham, and I hope you've enjoyed this tour. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Thomas O'Neill White. I'm in North Charleston with pro athlete, inspirational speaker, husband, father, Chris Singleton. Chris, thank you for being here today. Yeah, man, absolutely, brother, for sure. Um, we're coming up on two unfortunate anniversaries. Um, the top shooting in Buffalo on May 14th, uh, and in June, the eighth year anniversary of the Mother Emanuel AMC Church in Charleston, uh, where you, where your mother and eight others tragically lost their lives. Does it, does it feel like eight years has passed? No, man, it doesn't. It feels like, you know, happened a couple years ago but when I look at pictures of my little brother and how old he is now compared to where, when he was when we lost our mom you see how, how quick time flies but um, doesn't definitely doesn't feel like eight years what's what has changed in Charleston in North Charleston over the last eight years do you think yeah no I think you know for me I, I grew up you know I grew up here and so being a kid in the city being an adult in the city is totally different um, I definitely think a lot of people have moved here since, you know, the tragedy. Tons of people. Um, and so some people remember, some people know about it, but they don't, you know, they weren't here. Um, I feel like a lot of people have moved here. That's probably the biggest thing. Okay. Know? Has that, like, improved things or... Because I was actually was at Mother Emanuel yeah. uh, for one of their services, and uh, a woman said, you know, I think, I think race relations has improved a little bit over the last eight years. Yeah, I would, I would agree that they, they've, they've improved. I think on a, on a globe, like a more global scale, it seems like things have taken a step back, you know? Um, but fortunately, I think in this city, things have moved forward. So I think that's, uh, you know, unfortunately it took tragedy to, to, to make that happen, but I definitely think things are moving in the right direction. Is there anything that you could point to that hasn't changed? No, I th you know, even the people that would disagree in the beginning about certain monuments being taken down and stuff, I think people are coming around. You know, they understand that pain is real. So uh, that's that's been good. Um, I definitely would like to see more people of color and leadership here in the city of Charleston and North Charleston. Um, and I think we're going to have a mayor change in this city in North Charleston, so that could very well come to fruition. So uh, things are moving in the right direction. How do you feel about... Uh statues monuments coming down the confederate flag all of that is it yeah i mean i've talked to some people about it and they say hey it's it's great but it's also like symbolism yeah and there needs to be more action behind that i think that is action i think you know you can't idolize people that were literally on this earth to divide you know others and and, and stuff of that nature so i think that is that is affirmative action um me personally before you know when i was a kid you know, I didn't know about any of this stuff. You know, when you grow up somewhere, you don't know about mm -hmm. all, the, all these things that happen or what's still standing and what's not. But as an adult, you realize how hurtful it is for people that have gone decades trying to get these things removed. So um, I think it's important that they see that stuff happen in their lifetime. Yeah. Uh, Mother Emanuel Church has such an incredible history. Um, it, traces its roots back to a uh, proto-abolitionist and community leader at Denmark, uh, BC. Um, how do you feel when you walk in, in those doors at Mother Emanuel these days? Yeah, man, well, you know, I, I, I worship somewhere else now, so I don't really okay. go there every Sunday. You know, I go to a different church. Um, like a lot of family members actually go to a different church now that were impacted by um, the shooting directly. Um, but, you know, recently I just saw an Instagram post from Mother Emanuel. You know, Mother Emanuel is like a, a very older population, so 
Anytime I see an Instagram post, I got to text Pastor Manning and say, I see y'all working, you know? <laughs> uh, but I seen an Instagram post about Dr. King giving a, a sermon there recently. It was a picture of Dr. King. And so just think about the history that Mother Emanuel has had on, you know, black people, just people of the South in general is significant. So um, I'm definitely a person that appreciates that history. Um, just knowing who, who's stood on those pews before and you know, I feel like my mom and my church family, that, that'll always be my church home forever. Yeah. Is the is it still raw, that feeling um, of the tragedy? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's, it's still raw, but you know, certain wounds never heal completely, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you may have a scar that opens up every time you see something terrible happen, like what happens in Buffalo or what happened in Nashville and things of that nature. So. Um, I wouldn't say it's still fresh and raw, but it's definitely still there. And you do a lot, you travel the world basically um, as an inspirational speaker. And you last year came up to Buffalo um, to talk with some of the students. Um, what, what led you to that? What led you to that calling? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, maybe six or seven months before things happened in, in, in Buffalo, I was asked by a school to come up there to speak to the school and then I couldn't because schedules didn't work out. And so that's kind of eating me alive and I immediately reached out to the leadership at that school and said, hey, you know, don't worry about anything, you know, I'll make my schedule work this time, I'm going to cancel some things and, and go up there. I said, the only thing I ask is that you get other schools that I can just serve and give my books to. And they said, absolutely. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of how that came about. And when, when you've been through something, you have the opportunity to share that, share the things that have worked for you, right? And it may not work mm -hmm. for everybody, but just hearing somebody that has been through real stuff and has gotten through it and is still getting through it, um, talk about how they do it is, is, is impactful, right? I don't think it should be like an obligation to do it. I think it was an opportunity, right? If everybody shared the things that they got, their pain and how they got through that pain, um, others that are struggling with it currently will, will have somewhere to look and that's what I want to be for people and I forgot to mention that you are an author and when you were up in Buffalo you were sharing your books tell us a little bit about your books yeah all the books are multicultural themed and the message is all about unity in every single book whether it's a kid moving from a different country to the US and gets picked on because he's different but they celebrate him in the end or uh, just celebrating black heroes like Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Barack Obama, right? Just teaching kids about our heroes and our culture. So um, that's what the books are about. And I, I love doing it. And uh, people have supported them, so I'm gonna keep doing it. Are Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, Barack Obama, some of your influences? Definitely Barack Obama. You know, you see black president as a, as a, as a you know, black man, I feel like I can do anything, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so 1,000% him, Jackie Robinson, me being a black baseball player, you know, it's it's written that I, I have to appreciate the greatness and also the humbleness and the self-control that Jackie Robinson had when people are just disgusting to him every single day. Um, people like Muhammad Ali, I feel like he's a great orator. People don't even recognize how great he was at speaking, like the cadence he had when he's talking. You know, he's talking smack or he's just, you know, being confident. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I look up to that kind of stuff. So definitely those three are people I look up to. You list some of your clients, um, Boeing, the Washington Wizards, right? Oh, as a Wizards fan, I need you to talk to them every day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt, man. No, I, I'm hurting. I'm hurting. They're hurting me. I feel that. I, I, I do know that, you know, Bradley Beal, when stuff, when everything happened with George Floyd, Bradley Beal, um, he wanted. Uh, Coach Brooks to reach out to me and to speak to the team about race relations and what we could do to use our voice. And so um, that was definitely a blessing to be able to share there. Um, what was that like, speaking athlete to athlete like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a job to do, and that's play our sport at a very high level. But also, you know, athletes are human beings, and people forget that, right? When stuff happens in the world, everybody's impacted, not just people that work in 9 to 5, but you know, celebrities, actors, you know, NBA players, NFL, like everybody's impacted. So they go back home to see their, you know, black and brown kids at home and they want to make sure they're safe. And so I definitely 
think it's it's good, but it's just like me speaking to anybody else, honestly. You preach a message of resilience, forgiveness, and unity. Um, can you get into each of those attributes? Yeah, resilience is just me learning that being strong doesn't mean not crying, but being strong is being able to be knocked down and don't stay there. That's what strength is, right? And then show somebody else how to get up after you've gotten up. That's what strength is to me and resilience. Um, unity is a message that we don't choose our skin color. We don't choose where we're born, who we're born to. So we should never hate people for those things. Uh, I wish I would have been able to give that message to my mother's killer because um, in, my, in my ambitious goal, like I want to stop that stuff from happening in the future. And so that's the unity piece. And then the uh, forgiveness. Well, well, forgiveness is giving me the opportunity to do the work that I do today. I wouldn't be able to do it if I hadn't forgiven my mother's killer. And I teach people that forgiveness is, is not for the other person, but it's for us to complete our lives the way we're called to, right? Not to be thinking about the person that wronged us because they're not thinking about it anymore, right? So that's what forgiveness is, and, and, and that's why I teach it. I've got a two-part question. Yeah. Um, since we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the uh, 514 tragedy in Buffalo, how can the how can the Buffalo community apply resilience, forgiveness, and unity during this time? Um, because there still is a lot of anger up there. Um, and two, what can Buffalo residents, politicians, what have you, learn from what has gone on in Charleston these last eight years? Yeah, I think, number one, anger is okay, right? People think because I've forgiven that I'm not upset about what happened, right? right that's not, right. that's the furthest thing from the truth. Um, you know, my, my son's gonna have a t-ball game this Saturday. My mom won't be there to see him, so I'm, I'll forever be upset about that. Uh, but I think anger moved in the right direction calls for a calculated response. And if we're angry and we just re immediately react, that, that reaction could be something we don't, we wish we wouldn't have done mm -hmm. a year, five, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, and so when, when people lock arms and say that, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong together, I think that's where real change happens. Unfortunately, when terrible things like ha what happens in Charleston, what happens in Buffalo uh, happens, people start to want to choose a side and there is no side. It's just evil was done here. Let's, let's combat it together. And I think that's what people in Buffalo should be doing. We sh they should be locking arms and saying, hey, you know, we wish this wouldn't have happened here, but it did. Now we have to figure out a solution to make sure families that were impacted will be okay for the future. Uh, and also, how do we stop this from happening again in our community? One, one thing that I think is super important to, to, to point out is that my mother was killed. We, you know, the, the government a lot of times gives you X amount of sessions or excuse me they give you x amount of time to go to therapy for free mm -hmm. right because of you know every, all the cameras all the everything yeah yeah but what i wish would have happened and i've told the you know people that were associated with my mother's case this that i wish they would have said hey everybody gets x amount of sessions whether it's in two years whether it's in 10 years you know you'll have your time that you need to talk about this because everybody will need to talk about it mm -hmm. as deep as you want to push it down it will come regurgitating and, up yeah and healing doesn't happen in two months exactly three months it's grieving is different for everybody so having that you know x amount of sessions for people uh, would be super important so if the community of buffalo says hey i want to make sure everybody impacted is able to talk to talk to somebody about this whether it's in a year or whether it's in eight years i think that should be free for them um, and i think people would agree with that so putting that in place is super important talk to me a little bit about your son how old is he so i've got two two boys two boys i've got a five-year-old named CJ, Chris Jr., and I've got a one-year-old named Caden, and then me and my wife are pregnant with our third right now. So congratulations! Little, little thank you, a little girl coming in July. Um, and so family's everything, man. And when you lose somebody you love like that, and you know you have beautiful kids like I do, it gives you a reason to smile for sure. So I love them, love them to life. Chris, I want to thank you for your time today. Yeah, bro. Like, thank you for, for getting back from Jamaica and, yeah. and, and, and making the time for me, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's Absolutely. a real pleasure. Thank you, brother. You are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.
WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support.